Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, capital budgeting. And once I'm finished with that, you have a quiz to take, and then that's the end of it for the week for us. Happy as that time will be. Uh, and the uh, topic today is actually mostly just Excel, and it's not even the kind of thing you would do or use a template. Uh, we'll walk through it, and I'll finish it up on Monday. I'll extend the deadline for the homework for Chapter 11, just so you, if you haven't gotten it done, you'll get it. And this is a repeat of things that I've covered before in the class. This is just the formal version of it. But before we go to that, we have a look at the numbers, such as they are, one of those uninspiring days. The markets are just basically having no information positive or negative right now. As you can see, the NASDAQ was up a lousy eight hundredths of a percent. The S&P 500 was up a, an even lousier point, uh, ten hundredths, one-tenth of a percent. And then the Dow was down a little bit. <clears throat> if you look at the um, volume on the S&P 500, it was a little more than half of the normal volume. It's just that the money is staying off the uh, grid right now as far as investments in securities go. And if you look uh, on the bright side, crude is just taking a dive. It's so far down. And that will inevitably, within a week or so, bring gasoline prices down, which are unusually high for this level on the crude oil prices. The, the, um, uh, the crude oil is just flowing. It's on the uh, tankers, it's in the uh, refineries, it's just a lot of it. And gold, of course, is collapsing because there's just no, no reason to believe that the economy is in some severe crisis. It's actually in very good shape, as you'll see over here. The 10-year bond, the yields are dropping precipitously. And that, of course, is good because as the yields on the benchmark go down, so will go down other interest rates. We'll see mortgage, home mortgage rates going down. We'll see car loans going down. Interest rates on big ticket items of other kinds going down. So that will make the economy uh, stronger, and especially going into the Christmas season, that's a good idea to have a robust economy, lower interest rates. Most likely those interest rates are easing back because the expected inflation is finally beginning to drain out of the uh, economy, and specifically out of the risk-free rate, which is the base of all interest rates, as I showed you earlier. This isn't hard to see. It's just that the tight monetary policy takes a while to bring down the expectation of inflation. But it is happening now, thank heaven. 
Now, the currencies are just sort of bouncing around in their own little world here. Uh, not euro and the pound are not doing much. The, the yen is depreciating against the dollar. So that's, I'm not sure what that is. But anyway, going over here to the other side of the, the other parts of the world, Tokyo just didn't have much to do. It had another one of those spikes at the opening. It was up. And then it just sort of piddled its way down until it finished uh, a third of a percent down for the day. That's nothing spectacular, but it's still, there's just sort of a, a sourness in, the, uh, uh, in Tokyo. And of course, you've got the London doing its thing, not as severely as it has been, but it just goes up and down, and it kind of ends up almost where it started which is sort of what happened over here with the, uh, these indices. Uh, so there's sort of a global sort of directionlessness, if there's such a word, for what's happening right now in the world economy uh, and in the economies of the developed nations of the world. Now, quickly, just looking at a couple of stocks just to keep you fresh on uh, this. Let me start out with, let's, let's try Verizon. Verizon is a low beta stock, and it's, as you can see, 0.37 beta, very safe investment in a well-diversified portfolio. And it has a, a, the PE ratio is indicating that it is noticeably undervalued. So, and it pays, out, that's a whopping dividend. So if we looked at the one-year holding period return, just to make sure that you don't forget about that, if you bought it today, then the projection is that in one year, the stock price will be 37.26, divided by your investment one year earlier today of 35.77. Then you always subtract one, and then you multiply the result by 100. So you've got, that's the capital gain. In other words, what you, your percentage you'll make off the stock going up in price. And it's a lousy 4.17%. Well, that's a low beta stock, so that's nothing, that's not surprising. But you add in that dividend yield of 7.46%, and this turns into something of a gem. I mean, you've got a total holding period return, stock price going up, and the dividend check of 11.63%. That's not shabby at all. That's a decent uh, price increase, uh, rather a decent uh, return, especially for a, low, a, a very low beta stock like Verizon. So, one more. We'll look at Procter & Gamble, another low beta stock. Now, Procter & Gamble, its beta is a little bit higher than Verizon's, but it's still a very safe stock at 0.46 on the beta. Not as undervalued. It's still a little undervalued with a P.E. ratio of 24.43, but it's quite profitable, $6.14 a share. But that dividend is actually not very impressive compared to Verizon's. It's actually a more normal dividend yield. So we do the numbers again and look at this one. In a year, 
The projected price of a share of Procter and Gamble is one fifty five thirty six, divided by an initial an initial investment right now of about one fifty point zero one minus one equals. Now we times that by a hundred. So the capital gain is a lousy three point five seven percent. Now we add in the dividend yield, which is 2.49%. And you've got a kind of a miserable 6.06% total holding period return, annual for one year hold. And as you can see, that indicates that Verizon, another low beta stock, dominates uh, as far as an investment choice. If you had to choose between these, Verizon would be, obviously, it's almost twice as, it'll have a uh, total uh, holding period return for a one-year hold of almost twice what Procter & Gamble will. And as I've pointed out before, these aren't complicated, technical, graphical, and all that kind of analyses. They're just basic numbers and some arithmetic to make some investment decisions, not having to uh, work through complex mathematics and the, uh, what these day traders do all the time. You can see with just the basic numbers which investments are more prospective uh, than others. Doesn't mean that these are the numbers that will actually happen over in, uh, in a year, but this is our best estimate right now of what will happen. And everything in our business is about what is expected, not history at all. Okay, let's clear out this. And I'm gonna take you on the little journey here. Now, I, I kind of mixed together a little bit chapters 11 and 12, because in chapter 11, we talk about free cash flow, and then in chapter 12, we sort of lay out how free cash flow works. So if you remember from Monday, free cash flow would be your revenues minus your costs, and I should put up here operating costs, operating costs, minus your depreciation and amortization. And then you take that on an after-tax basis by taking that final amount times one minus the tax rate. This is this mess right here. Revenue minus operating costs minus depreciation and amortization all times one minus the tax rate. We call that no pact. So free cash flow is no pat, and then you take away the actual capital expenditures. And then you take away the change in net operating working capital. And that's what buys you your final numbers, your free cash flow. Here's the thing though. Now I won't go through any numbers on that because this is taking what you get and using it in what we call capital budgeting. This is 
deciding what projects you're going to fund and which ones you're not going to fund. Accepting some, rejecting others. The capital budgeting is the core of the decision making at the long-term level for any corporation. It's, this is how the company grows. Now, it can be either this, these projects can be expansion projects or they can be the replacement projects, as I explained in the last lecture. But one way or the other, we have to decide yes or no. And it's actually, at the end of the day, once you've got the free cash flow projections, the rest of it is not that hard. It's an ex it, it, these, well, it's certainly not hard anymore with Excel. Back in the day, it was a couple of hours of cranking on a hand calculator or something like that. And before that, having your math whizzes do the actual formulas. But in order to do this, there are three different ways that we can decide yes or no. And, well, let me just write them down. The oldest way, the oldest way is quite literally ancient. It, I mean, we have indications that this was how the decision-making was made even into ancient times, uh, the payback period method. And it was still about the only quantitative way that it was done, even into the 1950s, 60s, 70s, this was the way it was done. Even today, the payback period method is used in some corporations. A, a survey, recent survey, indicated a payback period, which is actually not a valid method. We've got two more modern methods that are valid. It's still used by about, maybe about a quarter of all corporations. And that survey, which was an academic, uh, uh, a, um, a, a study that was done by a partnership of industries and academics, found about a quarter of corporations do this. However, what they didn't do, which I can tell you is still the case, this is actually still used for a lot of quick decision making. Even though it's not valid, it's still used in more than just 25% of corporations or whatever the number is. There are two more modern methods. One is called the net present value method. And one, the other is called the internal rate of return method. Now, as a side note, as a side note, the more valid method is the net present value, NPV method. It is what we call, well, I, I won't get into that, but okay. The internal rate of return method has a, a couple of flaws in it. 
but it's still miles better than the payback period method. The reason net present value is not as popular is that you have to do a little more calculating uh, in the net present value method. You have to do a, a, a calculation before you do the net present value to use the net present value method. But I'll get into that in a little bit. The best way to do this is to just show you an example. Um, let's take uh, just a project. And, on, and that's, I'm going to write a table and the year on the left side and the free cash flow on the right side. And we'll do a five-year project down the, down the left column, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Now, the start of the project, going back to what we talked about in uh, the uh, last lecture, let's say it's negative $250,000. That's your initial investment. That includes all of the buying the, the facilities, the uh, computers, the desks, the work tables, and whatever. Everything is right there on the front end. And you go out, you get the bids, you lay out everything you're going to need that's capital. In other words, long-term expenditures. You get the bids from the different suppliers, you get the low ball bid, and you add them up, and there is the capital expenditure. But there's also going to be other parts too, because as I had mentioned before, you're also going to have in that year before you light up the sign, you're going to have to build up the inventory. So there's going to be an increase in net operating working capital, which would be another cost because you have to buy the inventory before you can even start the operation. There's a story that comes right out of here, uh, out of the area where, uh, not out right here, but it was not too far from here, I believe, that there was a group of entrepreneurial types. They decided they were going to open a restaurant, kind of a higher-end restaurant. Well they got the capital expenditures and built the restaurant, the, the, uh, the frying surfaces, the refrigerators, the freezers, everything. But they opened the store, they'd forgotten to add, uh, to buy inventory. So customers were coming in and they didn't have any food when they did their grand opening day. So there you go. It's one thing for your capital expenditures, but you also got to remember that you're going to spend money by increasing your net operating working capital. Uh, they didn't put in any inventory, and so the restaurant closed the first day and it didn't open back up. Seems that a lot of the fancy people who would have went in there were a little miffed that there wasn't any food to uh, sell them. Okay, so now that's, and then you're into the life of the company. Let's say the first year, your introductory, $30,000, you pull in. Well, you're cruising along now, you got your introductory, and then you go, go, go into your growth phase, 80,000. 
and you top out at 120,000, you're still cooking. Now you've gotten maturity and you're into your decline. 4,000, 40,000. And then you have your last sales in the year, in year five. You also sell off the last of your inventory, which you don't replace, so that adds, so that depletes net operating working capital, which is a cash inflow. And then you have your salvage value. And we'll, let's just say after tax salvage value is $25,000. Uh, and your revenues and your incre uh, decrease in inventory, that pulls in twenty-five grand on the, on the back end year. Now, there we go. There's your numbers. Now, they're easy here, but that's the, uh, in reality, you would be doing projections. Usually, you project revenues, your base revenue, and then you start projecting percent increase in revenue. And then all of the other numbers, kind of the lazy way to do it, but this is really how you do it, how it's done, you take those as percentages of revenue. Okay, our operating costs will be 40% of revenues in every year. And then our depreciation and amortization, we can do that off those depreciation and amortization tables, or Excel does it. And then down the line, you can get everything generating to get your projected free cash flows. Once you get the hang of it, and if you've got a model in Excel to do it, it's not bad at all to do it. It used to be a real pain in the butt. But anyway, there, the, there they are. You've got a five-year project, and this is its profile. Now let me take you through the first of the methods. Payback period. The payback period starts with, its, with an assumption, which is the deepest of all the flaws in it. A corporate policy will be in place. For example, let's say that the payback period, according to corporate policy, is three years. Now, what that means is that in this corporation, any project would have to pay back the initial investment in three years or less. So if you look at this one, at the beginning, you're down $250,000. After the first year with $30,000 coming in, you're now down $220,000. After the second year of operation, you are down, that brings in 80,000 more, you're down 140,000. Is that right? Yeah. And then, in the third year, with $120,000 more in, you're down $20,000. Then in the fifth year, with forty thousand more in, you're up twenty thousand. And then by the end, with the final punch of twenty-five thousand, you're up forty-five thousand. 
Now by the payback period method, we would reject this project because it didn't clear by the end of the third year. In fact, in this case, it was exactly halfway through that it cleared the, third, uh, the fourth year. So, in other words, the payback period was 3.5 years, which was greater than the policy, and so we reject the project. It is simple, and it seems to make sense. The first major flaw, well, there's one flaw that is more of a financial matter. Those numbers, 30,000, 80,000, 120, 40, 25, those, you can't compare those to each other or to the initial investment because you would have to take all of them back to the present value. As it stands, $30,000 in in the first year, you can't compare that to the negative 250000 unless you've taken the present value of $30,000 back one year. Similarly, in the second year, $80,000, that, that's not comp comparable to the negative $250,000 because you would have to take the present value of $80,000 two years back in order to make it in the same time units as the initial investment. So it ignores the time value of money. Now there is a, a, a variation on payback period method called discounted per payback period method where they do that. They correct each of those uh, free cash flows what years one through five. They discount them back the appropriate number of years. And then they say, well, that takes care of that problem. So it's a great method. No, it's not. The simple reason is the three years. Where did that come from? I, in my consulting time, every time I ask that, well, that just sounds like it's right. Or that's what we've always used, so we're going to use it from now of, of for everything we do. It's consistency. Well, if you're consistently using uh, a, a turds to make your sandwiches, that doesn't make the sandwiches any more healthier. That's the problem is, it has that completely arbitrary number there that drives the entire decision that you make, up or yes or no, accept or reject the project. So that's where, it falls down completely, even though it is used. And as I had said before, and I'll make a mention of this, uh, uh, it was al almost two years ago, I was at a, at a uh, dinner with some uh, executives of a company out of Peoria, and uh, the treasury, the, the second uh, in command at the tre in their treasury, the finance department, was talking about having to lecture this uh, one of her subordinates who had a project. It was a low-cost, quick project. It was going to cost about twenty-five grand, And he said, uh, and this executive would say, well, you just think about it. It was going to pay, uh, it, it was going to uh, make uh, $10,000 the first year, 
and then $10,000 the second year, and $10,000 the third year. That's, a th that's three years before it pays off. And I thought, that executive turned it down using a mental payback period method. Didn't calculate net present value, anything like that. Just did a mental calculation of a payback period and rejected the project, even though the company itself uses internal rate of return for capital budgeting. So it's more widespread than just what you might see in official uh, surveys. The payback period method seems to make sense, but it doesn't because one, you're not discounting, and two, you're picking an arbitrary number of years to cut off uh, as a cutoff. So there you are, that's that one. Along comes the 20th century, the last half of the 20th century. And it was not embraced well at all, really until I would say the 1990s. These two more modern methods, net present value and um, internal rate of return. And I was, I was in the fray at the time when the transition was being made. We were teaching it in classes like this, these two new methods, and then they were filtering out into corporate and they were bringing the new ways, the new technology of decision making with them, and then it started to creep in. So you are the inheritors of that first wave in a generation or so before you. Mm. And here's how net present value works. I'll do internal rate of return on Tuesday, or on Monday of next week. But the net present value is just gloriously simple uh, in theory, and also in Excel. The only problem with the, and this is one that the internal rate of return method doesn't suffer, but unfortunately, the internal rate of return method is weaker because it doesn't do this uh, warm-up. You see, the internal rate of return method needs a discount rate. You have to discount cash flows. So what percentage do you use for the discount rate? Most corporations take the lazy approach. They just say, well, we'll use the weighted average cost of capital. That's a bad idea. Because weighted average cost of capital is measuring the overall risk of all the projects of the corporation as a portfolio. But as I had fussed about on Monday, we're supposed to sandbox new projects. They are not part of the company yet. They have their own risk. Now a project might be less risk than the overall uh, risk of the company, in which case the WAC would be a number too high. Or this could be a riskier project than the typical project of the company, the average project of the company. So the discount rate you use would be higher than the weighted average cost of capital. So, but uh, one way or the other. Now, a better method to get the right discount rate for a project would probably be to use 
the capital asset pricing model. Get the beta of the project and then just throw it into that R sub F plus the beta times the expected return of the market portfolio minus the risk-free rate. And then you get a real one. But there's a problem. Well, what beta, where would you get the beta? Now, that would be kind of, and I think I mentioned this before. You've got a project. You don't know a beta of, well, what, it's not, well, there's not a beta stamped on the project. What you would probably do is go out and look at a bunch of companies that were specializing in that kind of project. That was their thing. And then you take an average of their betas. And that would be a good shot at the beta of your project that was like theirs. In other words, you wouldn't be looking at conglomerate companies. You'd be looking at specialty companies that do just this kind of project and see what kinds of betas they were, uh, they were uh, generating. And then you just throw it into the capital asset pricing model, get the risk-free rate, the expected return to the market portfolio, and just do that simple equation. But one way or the other, one way or the other, we are going to need a discount rate for the, if we're going to do an NPV, then we're going to need a discount rate. So, for lack of any better inspiration, let's use the WAC, notwithstanding what I just said about that, which is standing at 7.50%. And then we crank it. And I'll do this again on Thursday so you can see it one more time. Or Wednesday, I'm sorry. But you put in the year. <laughs> Try that again. <coughs> year, free cash flow, discount rate. Year, zero. One, two, three, four, five. Put in the free cash flows, which would be negative 250,000. Thirty thousand in year one, eighty thousand in year two, one hundred twenty thousand in year three, forty thousand in year four, and twenty-five thousand in the terminal year. And we put in a weighted average cost of capital here of. 7.5%. Now here's where Excel really annoys us in finance. Because the net present value, you're going to take the present value back to year back to the time now of all of the positive free cash flows minus the initial investment. It's all the net present value. But Excel doesn't think that's the case. Excel expects you to put in the initial investments separately. So I'm going to say equals B2 plus NPV, open the parenthesis, and I'm going to put in the discount rate, comma, 
the positive free cash flows. What did I do wrong there? Oh, we reject the project. It's got a negative NPV. It's simple. If NPV is positive, accept. If NPV is negative, reject. That's all there is to it. And notice how quick and quick it is in Excel. I want you to notice something. Suppose that I had said, well, actually, the discount rate should have been 6.00%. Oh, look. The NPV becomes positive. In other words, the NPV is inversely related to the discount rate. You lower the discount rate, the NPV goes up. So if I use 6.00%, I accept the project because it has an NPV of $621.12. So there you are. That's the net present value. And as you can see, like I said, it's, you can't even really do this on a template because different projects would have different numbers of years and you have to fill in, you have to create the table based upon the number of years. But it's really straightforward. That's all there is to it. And the internal rate of return is even easier because the internal rate of return, you don't need a discount rate. It generates a discount rate, which is also its greatest weakness, too. But anyway, that's all I have as far as the lecture goes. You now have a quiz to take. And once you're finished with that, that's all I have for you today. I thank you.